Okay, today we have part two of three of our interview with nature photographer James Baylog, uh, who we interviewed at our annual meeting last year. If you missed part one, be sure to check it out. It was released a couple days ago. And be on the lookout for part three coming up in a couple more days. Uh, so Lauren, what's what's this one about? Right, so in the first uh, part, we talked to James about kind of his how he got his start as a photographer and how his career kind of launched and took off. And today, we're actually going to talk to him about some of the more challenging aspects of his job and some of the extreme situations he's been in, including one story that I kind of forced out of him <laughs> that he did not want to say, but I'm really glad he told us. We're very glad. What would you say are some of your more um, challenging, I guess, shoots from a like, physical, logistical perspective? Like, less about camera, more about you and your crew and that type of thing. Really, the, the, the first setting up of the Extreme Ice Survey camera network was an ordeal second to none, really. That, that was, it was an idea that came to me in November of 2016. And if I had been working on a NASA grant, I would have taken well over a year to kind of do all the R&D on it before I had any intention of putting any cameras out in the world. But because I was accustomed to being an impetuous, make things happen, uh, energetic nature photographer, or nature photojournalist, whatever you wanted to call me, it was like, okay, this is November, I think I should just put the cameras out starting in March. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> so I had a few months. And, and it was because I was naive. I knew nothing about time-lapse photography, but I assumed that all that gear lived on a shelf somewhere at B&H Photo in New York, and all I had to do was order it, put it all together, no problem, what's the big deal? And I discovered after about two months that nobody had built anything like this before for those kinds of conditions, and I had to invent a whole bunch of technology that, that nobody... That people had in pieces and parts, but nobody had ever put it together for a purpose like this. And so I, what I did was I backed myself into a corner that I couldn't get out of. I was representing to some of my patrons like National Geographic and Nikon, hey, we're going out this spring. We're going to make this happen. No big deal. We're doing it. But once you start blabbing like that, you have to deliver. So I was just my, I, I had sleepless nights for weeks and then months because I didn't know what all the pieces and parts were that had to fit together quite right to make this system work, but I was still committed per what I was saying to people about when I would do this. So it was a cliffhanger, and it was a cliffhanger in a lot of different ways. And one of the big things that happened was I had to design this little custom-made computer that would tell the camera when to fire. I didn't know how to assemble it. I knew what the, what the circuit board needed to do. I had a scientist who was uh, building the things for me, and he built them out of, mm, let's say, cheap parts that failed. And we couldn't understand when we got into the field why they were failing. And it was just absolutely maddening. And we had to rebuild all that stuff and go out and replace it in the course of the summer. It just went on and on. Did you ever think about going to Nikon and saying, you know, this is what I need. Can you help me put this thing together? Or did you really just want to kind of do it all on your own? Uh, no, they didn't know how to do it. They didn't? No. Oh, wow. Uh, one of my very <laughs> first phone calls was to the, to the Nikon headquarters in New York. I, I've been sponsored by Nikon for many, many years. So I was able to call them and say, I need to talk to your engineers here in the States, 
Anne's may be the guys in Japan. I need to find out what the minimum temperature is that these cameras will continue to function in. Mm -hmm. They had no idea. They didn't know. No one had taken That's, a camera to the Arctic like that before? Sure, I mean. sort of, kind of, maybe, but it was kind of trial, trial and error. It yeah. wasn't they were leaving a camera on the Greenland ice sheet for, for four months in the wintertime. Yeah. Very different kind of process. And they, they really didn't know what the minimum performance envelope of the cameras was. And, and wow. we had to do the experiment wherein we, we went in, in Golden, Colorado, in Lakewood actually, there's this huge, huge, huge vault called the National Ice Core Lab. Oh yeah, uh -huh. Where all these ice cores come in from Antarctica or Greenland and they're stored in this gigantic uh, warehouse down uh, at temperatures of minus 38 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's cold, below zero. You really get dressed up when you go in there. <laughs> so we, they, they let us test our cameras inside this building. So I built one round of cameras, put three of them down right by the, by the, the thermometer. So I was sure I was at minus 38. Right. They worked fine for a week, but that's not the same as three months or four months. And it's not the same as being frozen at minus 30 or colder for many months and then wondering what would happen when they warmed up again. See, I didn't have that experiment, but I mm -hmm. had to go to Greenland and put the cameras out anyway without proper testing. So we were, we were learning how the cameras worked in field conditions that first year. And we discovered that incredibly, the cameras would work down to about minus 35 or minus 40. And then the, I, I guess, the electrons freeze inside the, inside the circuit boards, inside the copper wire, and they don't move anymore. Mm -hmm. And the cameras sit there frozen like blocks of ice or rock. But then when they warm up again, magically, they come alive. As long as your, your battery is putting out some sort of juice, yeah. the cameras come alive sooner or later <laughs> as it warms up in the spring. Once in a while, you get a camera that fails, but typically they, they work. Yeah. So it's like you have hibernating cameras, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty fascinating. So I'm interested because you're talking about like your equipment and, and the challenges there. I wonder if you had to kind of balance, like once you got everything working or working as well as it could work, uh, like the feeling of that payoff versus kind of what you were actually finding. Uh, it's like tech's working, but now this is what we're actually discovering. Yeah, well, you know, it's sort of two different forms of Christmas morning under the Christmas tree. You know, you're like you're opening the package and yeah. one, one package is, oh my God, the things actually work. And then the other package is, oh my God, look at what we're seeing. That was a shocker. And it was actually, uh, they, they both were happening simultaneously. And the big breakthroughs were the very first few months in Iceland, um, seeing how fast the, that glacier that I showed up there today, the Solima Yukut, how fast that was breaking apart and receding. We had no expectation of anything like that happening. And two months in, when we got the first downloads back, we just couldn't believe our eyes. Wow. Really, it was staggering. So, I mean, and, and doing this kind of work is obviously inherently risky physically, in addition to being logistically challenging. Is that, is that kind of part of the draw for you, or is it just something you accept and you have to do it? I, I would have to um, acknowledge in an embarrassed sort of a way that when I was younger, I probably liked the danger 
Yeah. Like a lot of younger people in, in embracing danger, you prove to yourself that you're brave, you're a badass. But when you get older and you've dodged the bullet a lot of times, it's definitely no longer a draw. You realize you've been lucky to avoid catastrophe. I mean, I, I literally have almost been killed a number of times. And um, most of that was long ago, but a couple of things were relatively recent when things went out of control in different places. And uh, I, don't, I don't want that, I don't accept that. And I'm actually, I'm a lot more conservative the past few years than I have been in the past. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, tell us about one of your close calls. <laughs> well, I sort of do mind, but um, uh, yeah, okay. Well, a long time ago, my wife Karen, this was before Simone was born, my, my wife Karen and I were on this volcano in uh, Italy called Stromboli down off the, the toe of the Italian peninsula. And as volcanoes go, Stromboli is a pretty mild volcano. But I went there because I knew that it erupted every couple hours. And I wanted to get a picture of lava fountain. And this was very, very, very early in my career. So Karen and I went to um, this island. And we, I, I had some very, very, you know, rudimentary Italian left over from having studied Latin in high school. And we talked to this man in Italian, this guy, uh, Antonio, who ran this little uh, uh, pension. And uh, I thought I understood him to say, yeah, you can go right up to the edge of the, of the crater. Oh and so we, we went up there with our camping gear, Karen and I, to spend the night, because I knew I needed to shoot it by, by dark. And as we were going up there, was a German guy coming down young German guy who had just been up there. And again, he had broken English. I had really fragmented German. And I thought I understood him Him also to say, yeah, 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 you can go right to Edge of Crater. Oh, no. And so <laughs> we, we, we hiked up there. And you get onto the outer crater rim. And um, you're looking down. And there's this all this fog, this steam <laughs> spewing out of the, out of the, uh, the crater. And I said to Karen, well, let's drop all our gear right here on the, on the rim of the crater, and then let's hike down. We're, we're not close enough to the action here. That's the big thing that the photojournalists are, are, are always uh, proselytizing about, especially the war photographers. There's a famous quote from the war photographer Robert Kappa saying, if you're not getting good enough pictures, you're not close enough. So that's what I had in my head. This is 1980 or 81. And so we dropped our gear. Karen said, are you crazy? No, we, let's just stay back here. I said, no, 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 no. We're going down there in that crater. Because the guy said we can go down in the crater. <laughs> and so we hiked down. And it's now twilight. It's almost dark. We hike across this flat plain of, of cinders and ash. And we get literally right to the edge of this hole with the steam pouring out in front of us. And this great rumbling and you know, growling going on from the heart of the volcano. And we're standing there like, you know, Hansel and Gretel tiptoeing up to the witch's castle, holding each other's hands in the dark with our headlamps on, looking into this, and the thing exploded literally right in front of us. Right in front of us, these blocks of lava were shooting out, out of the fog. And um, that was the single 
well, that was one of two of the most terrifying times in my life. It was just pure, like something that happens in the movies where time slows down, you know, just like what you see in the, in the films. It's like everything goes into slow motion. And Karen dove to the ground and covered her head. And I picked her up with one hand by the shoulder and lifted her up in the air and we started running. And this thing is erupting behind us and these blocks are spewing and this, this is like red hot stuff flying through the air. And we ran as fast as we could. I mean, you, it, my heart must have been going 250 beats a minute. Ran across this plane, didn't stop, didn't look back. And I mean, literally, by the time we got and felt we were far enough away, we were just you know shaking from all the adrenaline and looked back and all this, this thing is still erupting behind us, but we were far enough away. And we went back up to our, uh, where our gear was. She crawled in her sleeping bag and fell asleep. I sat there to keep shooting. And on the next eruption, about two hours later, the thing, the volcano had launched the blocks right on top of where we had been standing. The whole thing was covered with blocks of incandescent lava. But what had happened during our eruption, it had shot the blocks out in the opposite direction. So we were lucky. We were there on the right eruption instead of the next eruption because we absolutely would have been killed. Oh my God. And wow. that was not one of my shining moments. You wanted a that story wanted, of near death. I wanted, you wanted got to it. know. That's, I wanted yeah, to know. That's that's no, that's, that's terrifying. Uh, wow. All right, so two down and one to go. So be on the lookout for part three, uh, our epic conclusion of our special episodes with James Baylog. Mm-hmm.